A remote fantastical kingdom far from Europe's chancelleries of power. An ancient castle where secrets are walled up. An unpopular monarch on the eve of his coronation. A ruling class of plotters and would-be usurpers. And a gentleman adventurer on holiday. No, not Ruritania in the 19th century, but the United Kingdom in the 21st. Stein's new book, The Prisoner of Windsor, is a contemporary inversion of Anthony Hope's classic, The Prisoner of Zender. In the original, an English gentleman on vacation is called upon to stand in for his lookalike, the King of Ruritania, at his coronation. Over a century later, a Ruritanian on vacation in London is called upon to return the favour and stand in for an Englishman in an absurd, fantastical kingdom where Brexit never quite happened. Plots are afoot. The Prisoner of Windsor by Mark Stein. Available in hardback and digital editions or for a personally autographed copy, go to steinonline.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Sixteenth, twenty twenty-three, and we are going to modify our traditional recitation of the time zones in honor of Joe Biden's latest dazzling innovation. Who says America's lost it? In the sixties, President Kennedy challenged his compatriots to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. Sixty years later, Joe Biden is challenging America to put a Pullman car at the bottom of the Mariana Trench by the end of the decade. We're going to win and we're going to help. We have plans to build a railroad from the Pacific all the way across the Indian Ocean. We have plans to build in, 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 in Angola, one of the largest solar plants in the world. I can go on, but I'm not. I'm going off script. I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> Does Angola know that? Uh, anyway, in honor of the brand new Atchison, Topeka and the Ho Chi Minh Central Railroad, because... Uh, who wouldn't want to go 8,000 miles on Amtrak? Uh, we are going to defy our custom and recite the time zones from east to west. As Joe Biden's Chaikon Mula Chuchu prepares to depart Los Angeles for Kenya with Karine Jean-Pierre in the cab, Kamala Harris shoveling all the coal in, and Anthony Blinken mixing cocktails in the club car. It is 3 p.m., 
North American Eastern Time. That is 12 midday at Union Station in Los Angeles, 9 a.m. at Johnston Atoll, Grand Central, 7 a.m. Saturday at Marshall Islands Junction, 5 a.m. at Mariana Trench International and the Mall of Micronesia. Take the express elevator to sub-basement level 47,523. It's 4 a.m. at Palau, 3 a.m. at Singapore Central, 1.30 p.m. at Manor Island, change from Madurai, midnight at Diego Garcia Parkway in the British Indian Ocean Territory, 11 p.m. at Victoria Station, uh, but the one in the Seychelles, and 10 p.m. in Mombasa at the Barack Obama Terminus. It is uh, great to be with you. Uh, we did some uh, terrific telly shows this week. Uh, and it was good to be back, but it's taken it out of me. I still, um, you know, bedeviled by uh, <clears throat> various ongoing ailments. I think I'm in uh, hospital. I'm due in hospital tomorrow for something or other. Uh, but a hospital in another country from the one I'm <laughs> sitting in at the moment, which always makes it more convenient. Uh, anyway, I'm going to try and struggle through the hour, so uh, let us get straight to your questions. Keith Farrell says, BBC Verify has had some backlash recently revealing their biased reporting. Are they the provisional wing of Ofcom gathering evidence from social media ready for when they, Ofcom, are given total control of what we can say. As you know, it's the plan of Nadine Dorries, whom we discussed on the show. She was whining about not getting a peerage in Boris Johnson's resignation honours, and it was part of her crappy bill to extend Ofcom's jurisdiction to the internet. That's it. It's lights out for free speech in the United Kingdom when that happens. BBC Verify is just a rat you know i've seen all the people keep sort of put sending them my way these tweets saying oh uh, such and such shows the dangers of unregulated media uh the way these things are framed now if you're talking about regulated media the lesson of the last 3 years apart from anything else is that people are dead because of your crappy regulated media this is basically my position with ofcom everything i said is correct and the propaganda that ofcom seeks to maintain is false but even if it wasn't false people are entitled to counter it I always stand on the truth. That's just the way I roll, and it's worked for me uh, against that cockwombling Carrie Cats and other people. I always stand on the truth. I wouldn't be in this business if I was just peddling bollocks. Uh, I always find that a very odd criticism. Um, I there's certainly no money to be made in uh, in 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 going up against the counter-narrative, this talentless twit who represents BBC Verify, the disinformation correspondent. These are totalitarian, whatever her name is. I don't know who she is, and I've got nothing against her personally, one way or the other. But this is a totalitarian way of framing things. Everybody in the United Kingdom has to pay for the BBC, who everybody who has a work in television said. Uh, when you say disinformation, 
Disinformation only goes one way. Conspiracy theories only go one way. And right now, conspiracy theories are batting way better than the official propaganda is, uh, is betting. But the, the idea, what's interesting to me is that one way or another, they are all determined to maintain the narrative. And you see that the so-called opposition is reduced to trivia. So you can have things, oh, on, on, the, on, the, on the official channels, you'll say, oh, yeah, the, the vaccines are 100% effective against hospitalization and death. Uh, the alternative to that is not someone who, as I tried to do on GB News, counters that, but someone who talks about Harry and Meghan or who's going to be next week's Lord Privy Seal. Martin writes, the media silence concerning your suit against Ofcom has so far been deafening. The only references to it are on Stein Online. You would think even our somnolent news organisations would rouse themselves to report on what is a singular piece of news. Why do you think they are so quiet? Was the media this quiet at first in your free speech battles in Canada? Absolutely not. Uh, that battle, and this is a measure of how things have declined over the last decade and a half, that battle, in other words, my shoving it up the arse of uh, the Canadian Human Rights Commissions was widely reported in all kinds of media organizations that supported those commissions. It was support. It was reported in the Toronto Star. It was reported in the Globe and Mail. It was reported on the CBC. Uh, it was reported on CTV. It was widely reported throughout the Canadian media. What's changed here is that everybody now is basically on the take from the propagandists to one degree or another. I mean, even supposedly conservative outlets like The Telegraph took a lot of money during the COVID years from the government and from the Bill Gates Foundation and all the rest of it. The BBC takes money from the Bill Gates Foundation and rather oddly from US aid and from Nora. BBC Verify is funded by US aid, which is the BBC, which is the US government's foreign aid arm. And uh, by NORAD, which is the Joint North American Air Defense uh, at Cheyenne Mountain uh, between the United States Air Force and the Royal Canadian Air Force. I have no idea why either of them are funding BBC Verify. But Martin is quite right to, to, to point out um, that uh, this story has not been covered in the UK media. Eventually, it will have to be. But as I said, it's taking a lot longer than it was with my battles against the Human Rights Commission. By the way, thank you. I'm overwhelmed by the number of you who've written to support this. I'm the first presenter. I do regard, as I said, I'm increasingly of the mind. I'm mindful that, you know, people are entitled to position themselves where on the spectrum they wish to be. So it's perfectly possible uh, to be someone who, for example, is pro-Brexit, but doesn't want to get mixed up with any of the COVID vaccine stuff. That's perfectly acceptable as a, a position. But I'm touched by all those people who've said that they would like to support my uh, lawsuit against Ofcom in the English High Court. Uh, as you know, we've, we've uh, filed the thing. 
and we're awaiting a response. It's uh, the king on the application of Mark Stein versus Ofcom. If you'd, if you'd like to, I haven't gone for the, uh, you know, fundraising things because I don't trust them after what happened to the Canadian truckers. And also because of my own experience in the Michael Mann case, where Mann's filthy lawyers, John Williams and his colleagues, made uh, strenuous efforts in the early years to find out, you know, whether we had a, quote, legal defense fund whose names and addresses we could exercise. So we don't do that. We just do normal commercial transactions. If you want to buy a chum, a Mark Stein gift certificate, uh, the, uh, or a Mark Stein Club gift membership, 100% of that all goes to finding this battle at the English High Court. If you want to buy a copy of my new book, lots of uh, nice reviews for it, lots of five-star reviews. And very, if you live in the United Kingdom particularly, it's very relevant to the world you live in. Um, and uh, not quite 100%, but everything apart from the shipping goes towards this. So if you want to do that, that's one that's one way of doing it. But uh, it is interesting, the code of omerta. One of the interesting things is it only used to be TV and radio were, that were regulated. Now what's interesting to me is that with uh, newspapers are dying, obviously, uh, all over the Western world, and many of them are being propped up by government COVID ads over the last three years and by the support of the Bill Gates Foundation. Uh, it's disturbing that. I'm, I'm, I feel I'm not in great shape, as many of you will have deduced, but I have one last battle in me because the death of free speech will plunge our world into darkness. All the crap out there. The, the justification uh, for these nutty policies because of COVID and climate change, uh, you got to eat the bugs, you got to have 15-minute cities, we got to close the airports, you've got to give up private motorized transport. All these things are only possible because... Uh, persons like, quote, Lord, unquote, Grade and Dame Melanie Dawes are, uh, are, are operating censorship regimes with impunity. Um, Bentley writes, Mark, did you happen to watch Tucker Carlson's take on the federal indictment of President Trump, episode three on Twitter? I recommend it highly. I, I watch all Tucker's uh, uh, stuff. I'm a great admirer of uh, Tucker, and I was honoured to appear on his show for whatever it was, five years. It never ceases to amaze me how many American voters are so easily distracted by the ruling class that they completely miss the forest for the trees. It's a sad indictment on the state of the media in the U.S. that perhaps our two most honest, interesting, intelligent, and insightful political and social commentators, namely you and Tucker, are no longer front and center on any major network. All the best with your ongoing recovery. For those of us who are unable to make this summer's cruise, we need you around to do many more in the years uh, to come. Take care of yourself. Well, you know, I, I go with what Megan Kelly and I were talking about a few weeks ago on Megan's show. Megan, as you know, was with Fox and then with NBC. And she said to me, and I agreed, although she's far more eminent than I am, 
uh, that at a certain point, the kinds of people who are who run these networks, you reach a certain point, and I accept that if you're 19 and you're just trying to break into the business that you may have a different view on this, but certainly uh, when you're my age and when you're Tucker's age and uh, even when... Uh, <laughs> Uh, even when you're Megan's age, because because uh, because I've got a few years on uh, on her yet, you just reach a certain point where you don't think you think I don't need these people in my life right now. I'll give you an example of that from just I think two nights ago, whatever it was. Fox uh, Tucker was talking about this. I think on episode four, Bentley. So you've probably seen this by now, and I think I've seen a couple of comments in our comment section about it. Um, but uh, on whoever it is who was doing Tucker's slot uh, just before 9 p.m. a couple of nights ago, they were carrying a Biden speech. I use the term loosely. <laughs> and uh, and a Trump speech on a split screen. I think Trump was speaking in New Jersey or somewhere and Biden was speaking in the White House or whatever. And uh, an old a dear Chubba Biden. Uh, posted up on the Chiron, the lower third, that's the writing that runs along the bottom of the screen when you're watching TV. Uh, he put up the caption <laughs> under under uh, Biden, wannabe dictator speaks at the White House after having his political rival arrested. It was up for, I believe, 27 seconds, and then it disappeared because, as Tucker put it, the women who run Fox had a meltdown over it. That was Alexander, that's a guy called Alexander McCaskill. He's an English guy with a very dark and rather malicious sense of humor. And he, uh, when when Tucker, he eventually worked his way up uh, to the number two guy on Tucker Carlson tonight. And I loved working with him. And the challenge when you looked at what he'd be typing on the Chiron for the lower third uh, was always to make sure you were matching the position he he was taking. And obviously, since they got rid of Tucker and they've had, you know, various guest hosts, different guest hosts every week, I think it is on that slot. Uh, the problem with wannabe dictator speaks at the White House after having his political rival arrested. It's correct. But the guys who are sitting in Tucker's chair aren't that butch anymore and don't want to. And 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 that level of lower third labeling is way beyond where that. Now, Alexander, I regard as one of the funniest people uh, among the four. He's a brilliantly talented producer. He's incredibly funny. I love working with him. I, I honestly didn't think he'd survive uh, Tucker's defenestration very long. And so it's proved. And just as in the same way, uh, you know, when I left GB News, we took... Uh, our best producers with me and left all the garbage ones. I I always thought with Alexander, I was very interested in watching uh, his employment uh, prospects at the New Fox because he's a guy I would like to poke. He was one of those fellows who, you know, uh, if you just had a throwaway line, like I made a reference once to Brian Stelter was broadcasting during the COVID years. He's the CNN guy not not the most prepossessing television talent in the world um 
And he was broadcasting from his home during the COVID years in these rather short shorts. I think they were actually under shorts. Um, and I made a reference, I think, to milky white thighs. And uh, Alexander immediately typed that in and put that up on the, <laughs> the screen. And I think they ran with the phrase all week. And I think the first time I ever mentioned thoroughly modern Millie, you know, General Millie, the awful guy from the Chiefs of Staff, uh, it was uh, Alexander who had a graphic. He thought, oh, that's good, and had a graphic made up. He's very good. And actually, he's being sued at the moment. And I love this lawsuit because uh, it's being done against Tucker by a producer he's never met. So most of the details about why she didn't like it there and why she's suing Fox have to come from things that Justin Wells, the executive producer, and Alexander, his deputy, uh, did to her. And, and in, in, in the office, uh, I think it was last December, she she's Jewish and she complained that the Christmas tree was too close to her desk. And so uh, Alexander said, OK, and went into his office and returned five minutes later with a cardboard placard on which he, he, he then hung over the Christmas tree. And the cardboard placard said Hanukkah bush. And that would be in the United Kingdom, where he's from, and almost every other country on the planet. That would be a joke in the United States, in New York. It's the pretext for a multi-million dollar lawsuit. I feel very sorry for Alexander, but as I said, uh, I, I worked with him for years and, uh, and, and, uh, and respect him enormously. And that's the thing. This is the new Fox now. You know, I try to be relaxed when people are, oh, so-and-so's controlled opposition. No, you're controlled opposition. No, you're even more controlled opposition than me. I don't really like the phrase. I like the original song. Uh, how does it go again? Controlled opposition. He's just controlled opposition. Controlled opposition. He's just controlled opposition. I think I've got that record up in the attic somewhere. Um, but you get sick. The people who are running, you know, that what wannabe dictator speaks at the White House after having his political rival arrested. That is actually what has happened, right? And it is a disturbing development, even by the crapped out and corrupt standards of the federal so-called Department of So-called Justice, as Conrad Black and I have talked about. You know, uh, Justin Trudeau has not yet had Pierre Polièvre arrested. Uh, Rishi Sunak has not yet had... Uh, Keir, Sir Keir Starmer arrested. Uh, Emmanuel Macron has not yet had uh, um, Marine Le Pen arrested. But in the United States, uh, it is now apparently normal for uh, the uh, opposition leader to be arrested and charged essentially with some new process crime every week. I don't see why you can't say that. And here's the thing as well, by the way. It seems to me it's much more normal for someone on an opinion show, which is what 
this 8 p.m. slot is supposed to be. It's not really opinion anymore. They've been getting some of their uh, news anchors to host it, such as Harris uh, Faulkner. Um, but the uh, it's much more normal on an opinion show to put that up than for all the other opinion shows, uh, and indeed for the mainstream news shows, not to even draw attention to the fact that the guy who is represented to be the chief executive of the United States is the uh, moth-eaten husk of a brain-dead sock puppet who uh, announces plans for a railway across the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean. I made a joke about it, a cheap joke, but uh, it should certainly be possible to mention it. But no, everybody else, you know, when you want to know, all my life, I heard, oh, you know, the uh, media in the 1930s, they covered up for FDR's disability. They never showed the fact that he would arrive at these things in a chair and then would have to be hoisted into position and propped up at the podium to deliver a speech at which he appeared to be standing up. And uh, the media and people say, oh, I'm amazed. That would never happen today. It's happening before your eyes and on a far worse scale. He had a physical disability. This guy has a mental disability and nobody's mentioning it. Nobody's mentioning it. Weird. Weird, don't you think? Patrick Gagan says, Hello, Mark. Do the Republicans not understand that eventually the power-hungry, crazy Dems won't come after them? It seems to me that many squishy Republicans like the Romneys and McCains think as long as they play nice, they won't ever have to deal with the nutjobs. History shows us that those who want power become so paranoid that they eat everyone in sight, even those who help them take power. Rush always tried to get it through to Republicans that these people hate them no matter what they do. Do you agree? Of course. It's not even just the Democrats that hate you. I mean, I don't know why anybody listening to this show, you know, I don't dig American sports. I don't get them. Uh, I don't find them attractive to watch. Uh, and I've never been into them. And I always used to, you know, I used to, I never liked it when Rush insisted on taking the Monday after the Super Bowl off and I'd be there and I'd be expected to say something about what I regarded as an unwatchable game. The least unwatchable American sport, uh, I've always thought, is uh, baseball. But those guys hate you too. The L.A. Dodgers are going ahead with their big uh, celebration of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, who are drag queens who dress like nuns, which is because they despise uh, Christianity, because they despise the work of real nuns. Uh, you know, I miss real nuns, I mean, by which I mean the full habit, uh, not, not uh, after those Vatican reforms in the 60s when they started letting them show a little ankle. I'm very old school when it comes to nuns. The, 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 the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence is a joke at the expense of nuns, and actually sums up uh, very presciently, considering when they were founded, uh, the big problem of our world it, in which perpetual indulgence has, in fact, been made the new religion. Now, you think the, the one thing that, you know, would remain clear from all these modish, steer clear of all these modish fancies, the things like beer, the military, uh, professional sport. No, they're all the worst. 
So they hate you. The baseball guys hate you. The L.A. Dodgers hate you. Why would you be suckered into giving... To find some uh, Fijian rugby sevens. They don't yet hate you. Maybe they will hate you in a year or two's time. But find some guys who don't hate you rather than, uh, rather than supporting all these things who do. Now, in political terms, as Patrick was talking about, yeah, you mention uh, squishes like Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney was the he was a, a milk toast Massachusetts governor, and yet they portrayed him as uh, what was it? This vampire capitalist. They would they put up ads, you know, complaining that he'd closed the factory down, and uh, ten months later. Uh, the wife of one of the laid-off workers got got uh, cancer because the vampire capitalist Mitt Romney had flown in through the window and uh, bitten her in the neck and given her cancer. He made uh, he he, w- he was trying to be uh, show how progressive he was. He so he ordered his staff to bring him uh, binders full of women, as he put it, to fill some position because he wanted a woman to get the position because he was buying into the Id- whole identity politics thing. And they made binders full of women a punchline. Uh, They'll destroy whoever, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Whoever wins, I won't even put it in uh, Trump and uh, the uh, governor of uh, Florida, DeSantis. I won't even put it in Trump DeSantis terms. Whoever you, whoever you think is the weediest, milquetoastiest, um, uh, candidate running, Nikki Haley, Asa Hutchinson, Mike Pence, whoever it is, uh, gets elected and boom, immediately they're the new Trump. Trump is different. They want to teach a lesson. They want to put him in jail and make him die in jail. But they will destroy. Their, the, the, the question is, they have not recognized any election since uh 1988, uh, 1988 now, that's 35 years ago as being a legitimate Republican victory. So 1992, the Democrat won. 1996, the Democrat won. 2000, Bush won. They didn't recognize it. 2004, Bush won. They didn't recognize it. 2008, Democrat won. 2012, the Democrat won. 2016, uh, Trump won. They didn't recognize it. 2020, the Democrat, quote, unquote, won. So under what? That's 35 years of denying uh, any Republican victories at the presidential level. Do you think they'd recognize that Mike Pence or Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley uh, or Asa Hutchinson had legitimately won? Uh, in next year's election? Of course not. They've, as I said, 35 years uh, since they last recognized a Republican election victory at the presidential level as legitimate. You know, that's, there's, there's basically people now under 50 on the Democrat side who can't, who have no living memory of Democrats acknowledging the legitimacy of a Republican presidential victory. Um, We will have more on uh, this, more of your questions in a few minutes, but uh, let's pause 
for a brief musical respite from the hell of the headlines. Uh, I mentioned at the top of the show the uh, Joe Biden train that will be chugging across the Pacific and Indian Oceans uh, and expressed mild skepticism about an 8,000-mile journey on Amtrak. Um, America's trains suck these days. Uh, And in a world where we no longer have great American trains, there is another small casualty. We no longer have great American train songs. But once upon a time, we did. This one is by Harry Warren and Matt Gordon. Pardon me, boy, is that the Chaikon Moolah Choo Choo. Track 29, boy, you can give me 10% for the big guy.
the Chattanooga choo-choo. That's the Chattanooga choo-choo. On track 29. 29. Uh-huh. That's on the Tennessee line. She said the Tennessee line. Jack, she means that she can't afford. I can't afford to board a Chattanooga choo-choo. What have you got in there? You say you have? Uh-huh, but not a nickel to spare. Well, I do who declare. You leave the Pennsylvania station about a quarter for read a magazine, and then you're in Baltimore. Dinner in the diner, nothing could be finer than to have your ham and eggs in Carolina. When you hear the whistle blowing eight to the bar, then you know that Tennessee is not very far. Shut up for all the golden, got to keep it rolling. Whoa, Chattanooga, back here you are. Pennsylvania Station, about a quarter to four, read a magazine until the Philippine shore, dinner in a diner, nothing could be finer than to have your ham and eggs off southeast China. If you know that famous number one record from 1941, and you've also seen the film Orchestra Wives, you'll know we did a little mix and matching there. Glenn Miller and his orchestra... Tex Beneke in the modern airs, Paula Kelly, a lot of great players, Love, Mo Pertil on drums, Billy May and Ray Anthony among the trumpets, and then Dorothy Dandridge and the Nicholas Brothers kicking loose. Fabulous arrangement by Jerry Gray, the sound of America. You want something more glamorous than the Joe Dementia choo-choo? That we can do. This is Mark Stein. After three years in COVID, Stan, it's time to get out of town. 
So join me on the 2023 Mark Stein Cruise, sailing from Italy to Croatia, Montenegro, Greece, for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Australia, Britain, Europe, and we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. Yeah, the beautiful Adriatic with Ava, Leilani, Alexandra and many more. You can't beat that. Uh, We've uh, had a bunch of uh, uh, new cruise bookings and uh, the ship has managed to scrounge around and find some extra cabins for us, open up a few extra cabins for us, and we're very glad they were able to do that. But do not leave it long, uh, much longer, because uh, we are making preparations to sail from Trieste uh, early next month. Uh, You're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, MarkSteinCruise.com for more details. It is 21 to 9. British summertime, a little behind, a lot ahead, according to where you chance to be on this turbulent earth, particularly if you are on the international dateline somewhere waiting for the Joe Dementia choo-choo to show up. Uh, Let us get uh, back to your (laughs) questions. Tom Lewis says, Mark, hope your health is improving. Thank you for that, Tom. Any updated thoughts on Elon Musk and Robert F. Kennedy (laughs) Jr.? Um, I'm interested. Look, I, you know me, I loathe the whole running on biography side because of the Uh, American election process, because it means we just have crap for two years, where we get, you know, the John Kasich, I'm proud to be the son of a mailman thing. Most of these biographies are totally false. He will, you know, more relevant than him being the son of a mailman was that he was a brother of the Lehman Brothers. And so I'm sick. of. I just don't know. I mean, I wouldn't mind this. There's sick making drivel like that in every political system. But there's a huge difference between having to put up with it for a six week election campaign and for a two week election campaign. So I'm interested in candidates who are talking about something real. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has some of the highest name recognition on the planet. So he doesn't have to do. I'm proud to say I'm uh, okay. I wasn't the son of a mailman. Uh, I was the son of a presidential candidate and uh, former attorney general and nephew of a president, but we had it real bad because we didn't have the 40-car motorcade in those days. We had to make do with a 15-car motorcade. You know, he's talking about things that matter. And if you watch my interview with him, you will see that uh, right at the end, I ask him about the murder of his father, the murder of his uncle, And he says rather movingly that he's well aware of the risks. I mean, don't forget, this is a guy who thinks that the deep state killed members of his family. And everybody's, oh, it's complete rubbish. Well, we know the deep state at that time particularly was conducting assassinations around the world. You're asking them to show enormous self-restraint, not also. I mean, don't forget, if you're someone who engages in assassination because you think it is in the strategic interests of your country, why would, why would that uh, rationale 
only operate overseas. At any rate, for whatever reason, this is a guy who genuinely thinks the deep state killed members of, the, of his family, and he's willing to take that risk for the sake of his children, as he said to me on the show. Now, I find uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., I don't agree with him on everything. People keep particularly in the comments, keep going on stuff about the climate stuff. He doesn't actually agree with the COP26 thing. He doesn't go to COP26 or COP27 or COP28 because he doesn't agree with that approach to the environment. So in the environment, uh, he, he talks about whether you agree with him or not, he talks about interesting things like the fact that American children are over-medicated. And what's, what's, what's the point of that? Because they have the highest rates of childhood diabetes, childhood heart disease in the world. So over-medicating them works out great for Pfizer. Does it actually work out for the kids? There's over-medicating adults. I think Laura Rosen-Cohen, who was uh, guest hosting here a week ago, I think Laura mentioned this. Uh, some, some, was it in Laura's rings, links this week? Um, you know, over-medicating adults. What does that do for American life expectancy rates compared with the Japanese or the Australians or the Europeans or whoever? So he talks about interesting things. I'm actually going to be seeing Robert F. Kennedy, uh, Jr. in a, uh, what day is it today? Friday? I think next week, someday. <laughs> Assuming I get through whatever the next medical uh, uh, procedures uh, are. Um, Chris Davis says, Hi, Mark. Is $50 billion a small price for Mr. Moobs, that's Bill Gates, to pay to be Xi Jinping's new best American friend? Now, this is a reference to Bill Gates's investment <laughs> in the world's largest mosquito farming operation. It's obviously 50 million is nothing to Bill Gates. You know, Bill Gates was enormously enriched to an extraordinary degree. And he's now able, he's not interested in Windows 98 anymore. He's now able to use his money for the stuff he's really interested in. And we should have at least enough respect for democratic ideals to insist that he have no more access to health ministers around the world than you or I do. Charlie Citrine says, Mark, are you sick to death with the orgy of passivity that follows every migrant-related outrage? Apparently, the required response is to light a candle and aver that love conquers hate. In the West, immigrant communities defend their own. Host communities lie back and think of diversity. At what point did we all become Greenham Common pacifists? Has Buddhism surreptitiously become the new state religion? Or have we actually regressed to the human sacrifice of the Aztecs, appeasing the gods of equity, diversity, inclusion? Uh, I don't need to be asked this question. I said to Ava on the Mark Stein show, I think it was on Monday's edition, um, that the reaction to the French stabbings, stabbings of two- and three-year-old children in a park in Annecy, uh, a town I know very well, as I talked about on that show. And I said to Ava, these, these candlelight vigils, the flowers, the teddy bears, make me want to vomit. 
I don't know what else I can do other than actually vomiting. I've been saying this for over a decade now. Going back to, there used to be a guy who had a uh, piano on wheels that he would transport to all these various atrocities. Imagine there's no heaven. And he'd play it and sing it at every weepy vigil, regardless of whether it was in France, in Germany, in Austria, in Belgium, in Italy, wherever. That guy would take his dope. And people thought it was moving. Oh, look, he's come to sing Imagine. Imagine there's no... I said this on Monday. In the words of John Lennon, imagine there's no countries. It's easy if you try. You don't have to imagine it because this passivity is destroying all your countries. This awful secret. I, I said it with the, the... Go run it through the search engine at Sign Online. Pull up the stuff I wrote at the time of the Charlie Hebdo killings. You know, I'd met those guys. I wouldn't call them, you know, close friends, but I'd run into them, very this and that, over the continent over the years uh, in connection with the Danish Mohammed cartoons and all the rest of it. Oh, yeah, oh, it's sad, isn't it? They were all murdered. Oh, why were they murdered? Can we see the reason they were murdered? No, unfortunately, it would be grossly insensitive to, to show you that. But, but we're going to do all these things saying the pen is mightier than the sword. Well, wait a minute. The guys with the pen are dead and the guys with the swords are still running around. Yeah, yeah, but you don't get it. It's like saying that art will triumph over evil. Okay, well, can we see their art? They did these cartoons of uh, what were these cartoons again? Uh, that, that one in the distance looks like there's some bloke with a beard on that car. Oh no, we it would be grossly insensitive to show you the reason they died. So we'll all walk around with pencils. But look, there's George Clooney with a pencil. There's Dame Helen Mirren with a pencil. You make me vomit. You're gonna lose your countries and you're you're more to blame than the nutters. Uh, who go into parks and stab children. They're stabbing children because they believe that Islam counts and your crappy religion, whether it's Catholicism or Anglicanism or just climate changeism, your crappy religion doesn't count. So they're serious and you guys with the teddy bears and you guys singing Imagine, you're fundamentally unserious. And that makes you so so uh, you're going to lose your country and you're going to deserve to lose your country. And the rest of us are just going to get dragged over the cliff with you. But as I said, I've been doing it for over 10 years now. I can't remember the first Islamic death threat I got. It's been 20 bloody years. And as Ion, as Ion Hersey Alley has said, as I wrote in 2005, which is almost 20 years ago, around about the time of the Muhammad cartoons, it's time to actually share the risk. It's not time to hold a candlelight vigil. They've killed your two-year-olds, right? This guy would kill all the two-year-olds, all the infidel two-year-olds. In Nottingham, I look at the... We, we put the pictures of the two dead university students up on screen. And Dominique said when she first saw those photographs, it made her cry. 19-year-old uh, 
boy, 19-year-old girl, who'd played for the England under-16 hockey team, the England under-18 hockey team. And she's dead. Why is she dead? Why is she dead? Because uh, a guy who shouldn't even be in the country decided to stab her. I don't care. You know, stabbings, fatal stabbings, uh, as a routine feature of life, get used to it. Because two things will happen. You know, the, the passivity of holding up the candles and singing Imagine will curdle and degenerate further. So that at some point, people will start saying, oh, well, you know, uh, holding up the candle and singing Imagine isn't, isn't quite enough now to keep these troublemakers away from me. Maybe it'd be better if I just nominally signed on to Islam. I don't really believe in it terribly much, uh, but, you know, just to have a quiet life. The quiet life types are screwing us all. Screwing us all. Um, and uh, and the uh, and it's and it's not a and it's not a good thing. Uh, Simon Hall. Uh, what am I saying? Simon Hall. That's Chris Hall, I think. Simon Arnold says, uh, "Hi, Mark. Uh, what is your opinion on the Songwriters Hall of Fame? I read today that Jeff Lynne of ELO had been inducted into it. Who would you like to see inducted into it? And does it matter today? It's a." It's a worthwhile organization. It was founded by Johnny Mercer 50 years ago, and Johnny wanted to get all his mates in it. So I think the first 10 inductees included uh, Duke Ellington and Irving Berlin and all kinds of people. And then my uh, late friend Sammy Khan took it over. And I used to go to it fairly often in those. They had a very enjoyable time. Uh, had a lot of friends of mine who were uh, nominated and inducted into it, like Leslie uh, Brickus, who wrote The Candyman and Goldfinger and uh, Feeling Good and all kinds of uh, What Kind of Fool Am I and all, all kinds of stuff. Um, and uh, so for a few a few years, we used to, and we'd, a little group of us would... Uh, meet up at uh, Liza Minnelli's apartment before uh, climbing into the car. And I think I've talked about that before, the car service never showing up and everything. So I used to I used to go to the Songwriters Hall of Fame dinners, enjoyed it enormously. And I always like when Liza would sing, you know, New York, New York or whatever, and usher Candor and Ebb up on stage and Julie Stein and all the other people she adored. Um and then, of course, you run out of those people, and it's like the rock crowd who then get inducted into it, like Jeff Lynn of ELO. And it's a long time since I've uh, I've met, uh, since I last saw Jeff. Uh, he used to live not far from me. He used to live about a mile and a half from me, I think it was, uh, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and anyway... I would, uh, I, I have, I think there's a problem that the, the, there's, you know, the Grammy Hall of Fame, which is about records, or the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is about groups. I don't know how interested in songwriters people are these days, but I'm glad it's still going, and it would, uh, and it would be uh, very cheering to Sammy Khan to know that it is still uh, going. Um, 
Uh, Chris Hall says, can Boris rehabilitate himself by enlisting as a colonel in the army and fighting in the trenches against the Germans on the Western Front? Or is it too late to pull that off? I think that's I, I think you, you never rule Boris out because he has self-destructed or come close to it several times. And there is, you know, the, the, the uh, Scott Fitzgerald line, there are no second acts in American lives. In the case of Boris, he is on like his 27th act, and uh, one should not uh, rule out a 28th. Ellen Como says, Mon très cher Monsieur Stein, salutation de la belle province. Uh, because Ellen is uh, a resident of the beautiful province of Quebec. Uh, And she says, warm welcome to all the new members who followed you from GB News. They will surely discover what we veterans have known since the beginning, that this is the best corner of the Internet for culture, commentary and music. Very sorry for all of your recent health issues and troubles with uh, GB News and Ofcom. Uh, However, cool cats like you have nine lives, so you've got seven left. Go, Mark. I won't be able to join you on the Mark Stein cruise as I'm planning a big move to the lovely Maritimes next year and need to save my pennies. Uh, It will no doubt be a wonderful time, and I look forward to the broadcast of the live shows. My question, and if the esteemed Lord Black has any thoughts, I would love to hear them, regarding the late 19th century Canadian government's policy of removing First Nations children, that would be Indian and Inuit children, from their villages to civilize them in residential schools, Given the involvement of religious orders in this tragic episode of Canadian history, I have a sneaking suspicion that the alternative would have been extermination of the First Nations people, who likely would have been perceived as inferior by some in government as well as among the populace. It's almost as if the religious orders were desperate to prove that they could be educated and were deserving of respect as fellow humans. Witness the mistreatment of Otto Benga or the remains of Aborigines by museum curators. I'm not a historian of no evidence, but was wondering what you thought of my premise. Bon rétablissement, cher Monsieur Stein, et à la prochaine, Alan. À la prochaine, indeed. I'm very sorry uh, you won't be on the forthcoming cruise, but I hope if we, <laughs> when we... Uh, cruise next time we cruise around the Maritimes. I, I hope we'll uh, see you on uh, that, Ellen. The whole, uh, you know, present dynamic between what one might call the settlers of Canada or the settlers of the United States or the settlers of the of Australia uh, from the British Isles and the uh, indigenous people is being framed in a contemporary context that actually is utterly irrelevant to the reality of their lives. And it's quite, it's, I have no idea where it's going to end, but it's not going to end anywhere good. Mary Simon, who is the king's viceroy in Ottawa, uh, was asked what she thought about the desecration recently in Manitoba of a statue of Her Late Majesty, uh, Elizabeth II, and declined to stand in opposition to it. She said she wasn't, she said she wasn't going to second-guess what indigenous peoples would do. In the 19th century, and up pretty much to the day before yesterday in our own time, it was thought that the 
uh, imperialists had no great regard for 90% of indigenous traditions wherever they met. They had a high regard for certain traditions, such as they found in India, uh, say, than they did for other ones, because they took the view that, you know, if you've been here thousands of, my, uh, thousands of years and this is all you've managed to do with the place, don't give me any bollocks about being some kind of advanced civilization because it's simply not true. Uh, we're looking at the way you live and we just don't see it. That's why we're conquering your land and you're not conquering ours. Uh, and it was thought that the best thing you could do was to give them an English education. That there were two choices. You could let them stay and stew, uh, you know, in their so-called native cultures for another couple of millennia and see how that's going to work out. Or you could actually bring them into the modern world, which meant teaching them about the glories of Greece and Rome and teaching them about Shakespeare and Mozart, the same as any little... English or Scottish or Irish schoolboy would learn. So that is what that was the thinking behind it. And that is also the reason, by the way, that when you call up tech support, you're put through to Rajiv in Bangalore, uh, because that derives explicitly from Lord Macaulay's minute on uh, on Indian education, that they, the Indian subcontinent, the best thing you could do to them was give them the same education as an English schoolboy. Now that's apparently cultural genocide. That's what we're told. And it wasn't at all. It was, it was, uh, it got to actually what is uh, one of the great principles of common law, which is that there are no real identity groups. There are simply uh, in, in, individual persons and those individual persons should stand equal before the law so that if an English schoolboy is entitled to learn about Mozart and Greece then so should an Algonquin schoolboy and the fact that we have turned this into an opportunity you know there will be nothing of Canada left and in that void a totalitarian hellhole will emerge. So when we see, you know, this pissing on your inheritance, it's very difficult. You know, if you look at the Taliban in Afghanistan, or if you look at what ISIS did uh, to those ancient ruins in Syria, it's one thing for somebody to ride in and destroy your past. It's quite another thing for you to do it to yourself the way the Western world is, is doing. It's, it's, uh, it's very disturbing. Paul Harmon says the kids uh, are all right at Marshall Simons Middle School in Burlington, Massachusetts. Jamie Marsh has also uh, written to us on this. Um, it's a very liberal place. They have to deal with woke teachers employed by a woke school, instructed by a woke school board, all waterboarding them with rainbow towels day in and day out. And they'd had enough. So instead of wearing gay rainbow colors and accessories to school to celebrate groomers, they wore red, white and blue and chanted that their pronoun is USA. It is always a surprise to see light shine in the darkness and Jamie Marsh adds is there maybe some hope for us after all or is it as I fear that western civilization is truly doomed what say you well this is 
you know, one swallow doesn't make a summer, as uh, Bill Clinton told Monica Lewinsky. Um, but it is an encouraging sign. There used to be a naturally contrarian streak in youth. I mentioned this before. My old, my when I was at high school, my old school song was a very imperialist school song, all about rugby as a metaphor for life, playing up and playing the game. Uh, here's no place for fop or idler. <laughs> I don't know how they'd have felt. The guys who wrote that song, wrote that lyric, would have felt about LGBTQ week. Anyway, here's no place for fop or idler. So uh, when we used to have to sing it, uh, we thought, oh, this is like imperialist claptrap. We don't want to do this. So we all sort of sullen and just mouthing along. Then we got some new trendy progressive chief master and he decided he agreed with us. He thought this was 19th century imperialist claptrap and he didn't want to singing it. And so he banned the school song, at which point the contrarian streak of youth kicked in and we all lustily bellowed it uh, at the end of uh, every term, uh, even though he'd forbidden it and he'd banned it. We we would when we gathered for the last assembly of term, we'd all and I'm. Uh, I, I always used to have a decent respect for the contrarian streak of youth and these people now just going along. And my own kids, you know, went through some of this, this gay straight alliance stuff. It bored them all to hell. But they knew that if you objected to it, uh, that you would uh, get into a whole heap of uh, trouble. And uh, it is good to see the pushback and the contrarian streak of youth asserting itself. Scott Scherzer says, Mark, you're making me a bit nervous. I'm looking forward to meeting you on the cruise and hoping you can hang on for another few weeks. I don't know whether I can hang on for another few weeks, uh, but I can I can hang on for a week or two or three, maybe. I trust the ship has a tip top infirmary. As the only person that spends more time in the U.S. court system than Donald Trump, I was wondering if you had any advice for him. If his espionage trial is delayed as often as Stein versus Mann, he could easily serve a four-year term as president before his first court appearance. On the campaign trail, many Republican candidates are stating their plans to reign in the FBI and the Department of Justice. Do you have any faith that if elected, any of them will make these changes? says Scott Scherzer of Miami Beach. No, uh, these are weedy commitments reign in the FBI and the Department of Justice. The FBI, Newt's uh, caught up with this, you know. I've been saying it for a long time now. This is a wholly corrupt organization, right? And I, I mocked on Tucker, our mutual friend, Sean Hannity. I know I'm proud to stand. It's just a few rotten apples. These are straight shooting jeans. The whole bloody thing, Sean. You've been suckered. This, I found, I've got a little flagpin lapel that was given to me by some straight shooting G-man. Screw them. It's corrupt from top to toe. You need to break it up. Break it up and replace it with an agency that has far more circumscribed powers and that, for one thing, doesn't operate overseas, doesn't, as the, doesn't have the budget to go overseas uh, and start running around there. 
and monkeying around there. And the same thing needs to happen with the Department of Justice because, you know, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, oh, he's the most valuable prisoner in America. Uh, but he's dead. Uh, how did that happen? Well, it's the Bureau of Prisons. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah let me, can you show me the big map of the alphabet agencies and how they all fit together? Oh, what do you know? The Bureau of Prison comes under the Department of Justice, just like the FBI comes under the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice needs to be broken up. And oh, we, uh, oh, I'm a super moderate centrist Republican, and I so I just like to rein it in. When the guy's talking about rein it in, you know, he's going to do bugger all about it. Bugger all about it. Uh, thank you for that, Scott, and I look forward to seeing you on the cruise. I could look forward to seeing you on the cruise if you go to MarksteinCruise.com and you uh, book your stateroom today. Uh, as, as I said, they're opening up a few extra ones for us, and we would love to see you on the beautiful Adriatic. Uh, we will be uh, starting in Italy, heading down to the Greek islands, and in between we'll be putting in at Montenegro the wild mountain kingdom of uh, ferocious brigands who these days <laughs> look in much better shape than the United States of America does. You want a little more music to close? I was going to give you another great American train song, because who doesn't love a great American train song? But uh, I, gotta, I got no time. I got to run. My cuties do it. Two to two. <laughs> I'm a saying I'm gonna need that train from way out west. Way out west? Uh-huh. Well, what's the big idea, old boy, of this nervousness and joy? I got a date, 158, with the one that I love best. I know your cuties do at two to two. She's coming through on a big choo-choo. She's been away for months. And I haven't cheated once. You stayed home night. I didn't dance. You wasn't taking any chance. I didn't flirt. Well, I bet that hurt. I just couldn't do my cutie dirt Your days were blue My nights were black But soon you'll have your cutie back Cause I love her and she loves me and <laughs> And when you press her lips divine I won't let go till half past nine My cutie's due at two to two today No one knows how glad I am well, I saw that telegram And it was like a message from above Well, I bet you never sleep a wink Nights you lie awake and think But you bet I'll soon forget When I meet and greet my love Your cutie's due at two to two She's coming through on a big choo-choo You're surely feeling fine You know this gal of mine Is kind of short About five foot two She's got four legs and cross-eyed too A girl I wouldn't think much of But oh my gosh, how she can love Your days are blue My nights were black Don't cry, you soon will have her back I love her and she loves me and says Tonight you disconnect your phone Because I want to be alone My cuties do at you to do today
my days were blue, my nights were black, but I just knew that she'd come back, for I love her and she loves me and say, don't think there ain't no sandy floor, I know darn well there is, because my cutie do, that cutie do today. My cuties do it too, 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 today. My cuties do it too, too, too. She's been away for months, but I haven't cheated once. One of my very favorite train songs. Uh, music by Albert von Tilzer. He wrote Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Words by Leo Robin. He would go on to write Thanks for the Memory, Bob Hope. Diamonds are a girl's best friend, Marilyn Monroe, and Blue Hawaii, Elvis Presley. But in 1926, two generations of American songwriters teamed up on a train song, and that was its very first recording, Billy Jones and Ernest Hare. Stick with Stein Online this weekend for Rick McGuinness on the movie beat, Tal Backman on the Backman beat, and our Father's Day observances. Stay safe, stay free, stay well. All aboard! Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.